In today's episode of Taking Care, we talk about issues relating to inappropriate sexual behavior and misconduct. We advise listening with caution if these events may be triggering for you, and it may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. On today's episode, we're talking about a topic of our health professions that is not often discussed, and one that we know can be very harmful to those who are impacted by it. The issue is sexual misconduct in health professions, what it means, why it's important, and how it is regulated by opera and our 15 health practitioner boards. Here to discuss it with me are two people with extensive experience of looking at this subject. Professor Ron Patterson is a professor of law at the University of Auckland. He was New Zealand Health and Disability Commissioner 2000 to 2010 and New Zealand Parliamentary Ombudsman 2013 to 2016. Importantly for our discussion here, in 2017, Ron was commissioned to conduct an independent review of the use of chaperones to protect patients. He has just recently followed up that review with a report looking at the regulatory changes that have been made three years on and to see how sexual misconduct is now managed. Good to be here. Christine G is the CEO of Tuong Private Hospital. She is also the chair of the Sexual Boundaries Notifications Committee and a member of the Queensland Board of the Medical Board of Australia. Thank you. Ron, can you start by telling us a bit about your connection to this issue? So you mentioned that for 10 years, I was New Zealand Health and Disability Commissioner. And in that role, I had to deal with complaints against health practitioners, uh, mainly about performance and and clinical issues. Uh, But there were always a few alleging sexual misconduct. And they're very difficult, very messy. Uh, The people involved are, are often very, very hurt by you know, by what they say happens if they're the, uh, the a patient who's uh, notifying what's happened to them. Uh, the doctors are outraged and so forth. It wasn't something that I did a lot of research on. Uh, but then in 2016, uh, I was asked uh, to by Martin uh, Fletcher, the CEO of APRA, to uh, come over in the, in the wake of uh, major allegations that had come out of the media in Melbourne. I I sort of walked into a bit of a firestorm uh, and uh, learned a great deal uh, during the process of of talking to people who'd been affected by it as patients, as family members, as notifiers, but also doctors who'd been subject to these allegations. Uh, And at that time, I did a lot of research and a lot of consultation with how the then system in Australia was working. Thanks. And, and Chris, what does it, um, in terms of your connection, what does it mean to be the chair of the Sexual Boundaries Notifications Committee? What is that? Um, the Sexual Boundaries Notifications Committee is probably the first of the really national approaches that APRA and the Medical Board have taken to um, dealing with notifications. So I joined the Medical Board of Queensland back in 2014. I'm a community member of that board. And in shortly after Ron's review was handed down in 2017, the Medical Board of Australia decided to 
establish a specialised committee that would look at all of the sexual boundary notification matters for all medical practitioners across the country. Thanks. And Chris, can you give us an idea of what you mean by, well, we're sort of using the term sexual misconduct, sexual boundary um, violations. Um, we're using those somewhat interchangeably. Um, but can, can you explain what you mean by that in the context of health practitioners? So in terms of when APRA and the medical board refer to sexual boundary notifications, we're referring to allegations that are made about a health practitioner failing to maintain appropriate professional boundaries with patients. So there's quite a wide spectrum of sexual boundary behaviours that we see. It can include sexual relationships with patients, physical examinations that are not clinically indicated, um, physical examinations where a patient feels that they have not had informed consent about that particular examination. Also behaviours of a sexual nature. So if a health practitioner, for example, is making sexual remarks or using inappropriate humour or innuendo, flirtatious behaviour, it can be touching patients in a sexualised way, engaging in sexual behaviour in front of a patient, or using words or acting in a way that might reasonably be interpreted as designed or intended to arouse or gratify sexual desire, as well as obviously grooming type behaviours, which we see at, at the higher end of, end of um, matters. It can be asking a patient about their sexual history or preference when the questions aren't relevant to their healthcare or where a practitioner hasn't explained why it's necessary to discuss those matters. Sexual exploitation or abuse, sexual harassment, and that can be both with patients or extend into colleagues, students, um, as well as within the patient context, right to sexual assault and obviously criminal charges that arise out of that. Ron, this may seem like an obvious question, but why is it inappropriate for practitioners to engage in sexual misconduct or sexual boundary violations? Is there anything about their role that makes this particularly harmful? There's the issue of trust. We trust that when uh, we're asked to disrobe or to undergo an examination by a doctor or other health practitioner, that that's being done for appropriate reasons. So it's an issue of trust. Uh, it's also an issue of power imbalance uh, because it, it, it's very easy, uh, particularly in, in any uh, relationship where there might be a sort of psychotherapeutic element, and that can certainly happen in a, over you know, a general practice uh, relationship uh, where you know, gee, the doctor's actually listening to me. They care for me. Uh, and then on the doctor's side, they can think, oh, the patient listens to what I say in return. I wish I could get that at home. Uh, and so you get the sort of transference going on. So that's the second reason. It's also important for objectivity uh, because if you become involved romantically uh, with your patient, you don't bring the necessary objectivity uh, to the, you know, to your treatment of them. Uh, and it's important for quality of care uh, and for patient safety. Patients are harmed uh, when they are uh, um, assaulted or subject to advances. Some patients are then too scared to go and seek necessary medical care. And finally, it's an issue of public confidence. 
Because when the public hears about these more serious allegations, and particularly when they're substantiated, people lose trust in the medical profession uh, and in other health professions where, where this happens. So for a whole range of reasons, it's always been recognized in codes of ethics going right back to Hippocrates that it's completely inappropriate to have any relationship with a patient or to use a patient for ulterior motives. I just think it's important to mention at this point that when we're talking about sexual boundary notifications, they're made about less than 0.1% of the medical workforce in Australia each year. However, as Ron said, when concerns about sexual boundary breaches are made, they are most often very serious and they have serious and significant impacts on individual victims that can have a permanent, tangible and long-lasting effect on that um, person, but also on public trust of medical and other health professionals. So they really are very, very serious and very important matters, although rare. Chris, do you have any comment about why this is an important discussion for us to be having, particularly now? I think it's important to have this discussion at any particular point in time, but certainly now more than ever. We're really on the back of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. There's obviously been a number of high profile sexual harassment and abuse cases, both in Australia and, and, quite, um, and internationally. Ron spoke about the um, Sentinel event case, I guess, that prompted the APRA and the medical boards to ask Ron to come and do a review of chaperones in the first instance. There's been a lot that's been in the news and media around the Me Too social movement as well. Um, so I think really the, the doors have been opened on, I don't think sexual misconduct is something that is just occurring now and hasn't ever occurred before, but I think it's certainly something that is now certainly more out in the open. Um, I think we are dealing with a completely different range of patients and consumers than we have in all facets of our life before, and they demand and expect accountability, and accountability with your health professional is really the cornerstone of that relationship. As, as Ron has said, it's the most important relationship in terms of trust. You're at, usually at a very vulnerable moment in your life, whether it be a significant illness um, or whether you're concerned about ramifications for a change in lifestyle. So to not be able to trust the people that you're putting ultimate faith with your health in is just something that the community won't tolerate. Just on this point of, of prevalence, Obviously, only a tiny minority of health practitioners are subject to uh, such a notification. Uh, but there's reason to suspect that it's a bit more prevalent than that. Of course, there's going to be a lot of underreporting that goes on. Uh, it's obviously a difficult topic to research. Uh, and even when you try and do that, you know, do it anonymously, uh, there's going to be sort of bias in what, what people report. But some studies suggest that up to one in 10 doctors uh, and certainly even more psychiatrists uh, would admit to have had, having had some sexual contact with a patient uh, and even um, and even less research actually in relation to patients 
reporting having been subject to a, a sexual advance by their practitioner, but Canadian research uh, suggesting something between one and 4% of patients actually uh, admitting to that. So it's probably a bit more uh, than we might think. Uh, and one of the interesting features of, of this particular topic of uh, medical and health practice and regulation is the professions themselves recognize that there needs to be a clear stance taken. They don't tolerate it. They don't think it's acceptable uh, in their colleagues. And although people like to talk about the gray cases, uh, most of the cases are not grey. Thanks for that, Ron. Can I follow on with a question about um, that that may well be raised by some people, which is, uh, you know, why might a sexual relationship, for example, between two consenting adults, would that ever be an issue for the regulator, and and why would that be? It's interesting. Some uh, commentators will say it's always exploitation because there's always been a a power imbalance. Others say that that's too, too strict an approach. Uh, the medical board guidelines are very clear that it's never acceptable to uh, be in a relationship with a current patient, a sexual or intimate relationship with a current patient. Then people say, well, what about the former patient? Well, it's never acceptable to discharge a patient from your care so that you can then start a relationship. Uh, in my view, if there's been a psychotherapeutic element, so if you've been a psychiatrist or a GP who's been counselling or a psych psychologist, in my view, it's probably never appropriate in that situation uh, to be entering a relationship. Uh, but tribunals uh, and boards have taken different views on that matter over, over the years. Uh, if it's been more transitory, you know, if you if you operate on somebody's knee uh, and then later develop a relationship with them, then most people will not see that as being exploitative, and it probably won't be something that would be the subject of um, an investigation. But it sounds like you've raised the fact that um, that while there are maybe very clear guidelines, that there are some areas where um, it's difficult for for boards. What are some of the things you um, that boards do think about in these contexts to try to understand uh, when a relationship like that is um, is not appropriate? I guess what the boards would really look for is the context of the treating relationship. So as Ron said, whether there's been a a psychological component to that, the length of time that the patient and the practitioner were in um, a treating relationship with, um, the vulnerabilities of the, the patient going into um, and what kind of issues the practitioner treated the patient for, um, how the relationship took place. So I, and I think that's that, that is where this becomes a difficult issue in terms of whether or not there was grooming behaviour that resulted in the relationship occurring in the first place. So whether or not there was some form of predatory component to the practitioner seeking to enter into a relationship with a vulnerable patient, um, whether or not um, there was other factors involved in terms of um, feeling a reliance on the particular practitioner 
for not only your health care, but a whole raft of, of other issues, if there was inappropriate medical care given. So we then go into some of the performance related type issues around prescribing. Um, if, for example, there was prescription of um, benzodiazepine or other medications such as that. So a raft of factors really is taken into account and looked into. It's, these are very complex issues. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that APRA and the boards have really invested so much into education in terms of the investigators that look into these matters, as well as the boards and the decision makers who make the decisions based on those investigations. Well, that's a great segue, um, Chris, because I actually do want to now think a bit more about how do we um, uh, look at these and manage these kinds of matters, because I think that's very interesting for um, for people to understand. So, Ron, I wonder if you can walk us back um, in time a bit and explain maybe how um, Australian health regulators um, traditionally or historically approached um, sexual boundary or sexual misconduct matters. So historically in Australia and internationally, uh, when an allegation has been made of uh, sexual misconduct, uh, if it appears to be serious, uh, and in the past I think there was quite a differentiation taken between cases that looked like there was some evidence of an assault, a sexual assault, uh, or there seemed to be fairly clear evidence of a relationship with a current patient, while that matter was being investigated, uh, the doctor would be required to practice subject to a, having a chaperone. So the concept of, of having a chaperone is one we're very familiar with, uh, and it's traditionally been regarded as good medical practice for an intimate examination. But what I'm talking about here is when the regulator, the board says, as a condition of your practice, and it goes on the register, you may only see patients if you have a chaperone there in the room uh, who is monitoring your conduct. And so that was, that was thought traditionally, well, that's a sensible thing to do. It's a, it's a safeguard while we find out uh, what's, been, been, you know, what, what's going on here until we can reach a, a determination. Uh, and that was done in New Zealand and the UK and Canada and the United States. It's, it's you know, we've got a, uh, this is the problem. Well, this is the tool that we use. And it's funny when you think about it, when I was asked to do this review in 2016, well, even the word chaperone, I mean, who was talking about chaperones in any other context? It sounds like something from Jane Austen. But in the health professions, we were still talking about chaperones. Now, in the intervening period, you know, we'd um, developed the law of informed consent, the Rogers and Whittaker case, and the whole notion of, of uh, patient expectations, partnership, and so forth. So in many ways, things had evolved, but our regulatory practice had not evolved. And so I was asked by APRA to look at a couple of things. Firstly, was this consistent with patient expectations? But also, uh, given the fact that the, the Sentinel case, when law student Tom Monag Monagall spoke out bravely in the media about his experience, uh, it then emerged that a second patient, uh, and, and, and he had spoken out and the chaperone had been put in place at, uh, the chaperone for the neurologist, but it turned out that another patient came forward and said, well, I was uh, assaulted 
even when there was a chaperone. Uh, and so the second thing I was asked to look at is whether it was effective uh, as a way of protecting patients. Ron, I know that this review took you quite a long time and far longer time than we have for you to explain the full thing, but we would really be interested to know what were the key findings that came out of this in terms of actions or changes to the way um, that these kinds of matters, these sexual boundary um, notifications should be managed. The more I looked into it, I realized the system we had was outdated. The chaperones didn't know what they were supposed to be watching for. They weren't properly trained. They were often employees of the health practitioner, so there was a power relationship there. The patient thought it, often thought it was somebody who was doing research or a trainee in the room, so they were, they were in the dark. If you tried to, to fix those problems, then you added a whole layer of complexity to, to the whole edifice. And you, at some point, is it worth the candle? So there was that part of it. But the other part of it was actually, these are serious complaints, but they also have other elements that are true of all uh, complaints or notifications. And that is that they are, they are stressful for the parties, uh, that they tend to take far too long. These ones have particular issues of need for sensitivity, uh, to, you know, to, especially to the notifiers, the, the, the role of trauma and so forth. So my recommendations uh, at the end of the review that, was that the scheme should move away from using chaperones if in an exceptional case they thought it was necessary to have somebody there to be watching, that person should be called a practice monitor, but not used if there's any allegations that are serious that could be criminal or if there's prior history in that sort of situation. Uh, so abandon the use of chaperones, improve the skills in the handling of these cases by training your staff, by having a specialist subcommittee that Christine, Christine G now chairs, the Sexual Boundary Notification Committee, so you develop that expertise uh, in handling the, the, the cases uh, and use gender-based, so after a, a prompt and a proper assessment, where it's deemed necessary, use a gender-based restriction that you're not to see patients of the gender of the patients that you've made advances to, say, uh, or in the more serious cases, to suspend the uh, the practitioner. So I, I made those recommendations, uh, and uh, as we've heard, that's led to quite a sea change in the way in which these cases are handled in Australia. And ultimately, the national law makes it clear that the first job of the regulator of the board is to protect patients and the community. So that has to be the starting point. Uh, but equally, people have to have an opportunity to, you know, to respond, and they do. There's got to be due process. Uh, and um, the, these matters need to be handled with skill. Uh, uh, and that's something that I've seen a lot of investment in, uh, in APRA and the national boards, uh, particularly through the Sexual Boundaries Notification Committee over the last three years. On that point, actually, Ron, you've just gone, come back um, within the last six months and and had a, a relook, sort of jump back in to say, where are we three years down the track and what kind of progress has been made? Um, can you talk to us a bit about some of the highlights of what you've seen coming back? 
So I'd made 28 recommendations, they'd all been accepted, uh, and I was really heartened to see uh, that the claims that were made that, yes, we're doing all this, actually were backed up because I, I, I had open access to files, to uh, attend meetings, you know, I had a pretty thorough look at what had happened. I think there have been quite profound changes. Uh, and I think as a result, uh, patients in the community, I believe, are probably safer than they were. And Chris, do you want to make any other comments about what you see as working well or maybe still um, where there's some room for growth to happen? We really have, as Ron said, invested a lot in education and professional development. And certainly the sexual boundaries notification members attend to compulsory education, full day education sessions each year, as well as a lot of of other um, online type access to training. I think a lot of work has gone into the risk analysis of what the notification actually highlights um, and what would be an appropriate mechanism to put in place to safeguard the, the public, um, so patients or the public as a whole, whether it be increased supervision or right up to um, the most serious of our regulatory measures, which would be a suspension of the medical practitioner. Um, I think one of the things that I would like to highlight and came very much out of Ron's review in terms of looking at that single committee making the decision rather than it being across a, a variety of state and territory boards. I think through consolidating that decision making within a single committee, we've really been able to readily identify trends and issues in relation to sexual boundary notifications. And not all of them are at the sexual misconduct type end. So um, one of the things that we certainly found, and I think it, it has been called out in um, Ron's new report, three years on, um, is really that it's not uncommon for us to receive notifications about physical examinations that have been undertaken by a practitioner that are really perceived by the patient to be inappropriate. And particularly when we're talking about a medical practitioner putting a stethoscope on the bare skin of a patient, which as anyone in the medical field would know is absolutely the appropriate way to listen to someone's chest. Definitely do not put a stethoscope on top of clothing to try and listen to someone's chest. So it, it has been very good from the point of view of having a single decision maker to point out or to pick up a trend like that, which is clearly it shows a few things. One, I guess that we've got some medical practitioners doing listening to people's chests in the wrong way. And maybe that's because of an over-caution of not wanting to place a stethoscope on bare skin. But we've also got some missing bits of health literacy in terms of the general public actually understanding that that really is an appropriate way to listen um, to your chest. So certainly, now that we've identified that, it's very exciting to be able to work with our colleagues on the national board to consider the issue in more detail and to, to publish some professional guidance about that. So we're 
trying to get as well into a proactive space. So not just that we're going to reactively receive these notifications and do investigations and make decisions, but where we find issues to actually provide some information and guidance back to the profession to try and stop these things coming before us again. So it, it is certainly um, exciting to be in that space. So we really will be looking to publish some, some guidelines around putting physical examinations into practice, illustrating the risks of a clumsy or poorly explained examination to practitioners. And while at the same time, really trying to guide the community and, and improve that health literacy by improving the knowledge and understanding of health information, including why health practitioners may need to undertake a range of physical examinations. And Ron, do you have any, any thoughts on what you, I suppose what you would hope um, in terms of patient safety and the impact of, um, of the review and your return to the review and, and what that might mean for patients going forward? So I think there's some reason to believe that patients will now be safer. Uh, that's also been helped by the new public interest ground that's been added to the national law. Uh, so I, I think patients and the community can have some confidence uh, in the way these allegations are now being handled. I think patients can have confidence that there's uh, going to be greater sensitivity uh, that it, they won't simply have their statements discounted on a he said, she said basis. Uh, and I think that's really important. Equally, I think practitioners can have confidence that these uh, matters are being handled with much greater professionalism and consistency. And I found it telling during my three years on review that the defence organisations didn't sort of relitigate uh, the new approach. And, and they accepted that there was generally much more consistency and that it had been a good thing to move to a national approach under a national committee. Thank you so much for being with us today to discuss a difficult but a really important issue. And thank you for your commitment to protecting patients and the public. Now, if you have any feedback or questions, please email communications at opera.gov.au to hear more episodes of our podcast Please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the Opera website.